Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Tim, as uh, Trevor mentioned in his prayer. So, uh, so glad to be with you this morning. And Nickel Hall, if you're watching, uh, good morning here in the worship center. Good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible or electronic device that has a Bible app on it, uh, if you could get to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to continue in our series this morning entitled Awe. And after uh, the message today, uh, we're going to celebrate communion. We, it's also called the Lord's Supper. One of our elders, Rob Griffin, is going to help direct that for us. So we've got, we've got, uh, we've got an exciting time uh, yet left in this morning. And if, if there's one thing that I would want you to get from today, it's, it's these simple words. God loves you. God loves you. You. Now, I grew up in the church. My family, uh, my mom and dad were Christians, so I was raised, um, you know, going to church often, being in Christian setting often. And, and those words, God loves you, um, you're going to hear quite often. And maybe you're here this morning and, you know, you've been in church life most of your life, however long that is. And so you've heard the words, God loves you, multiple times. And I'm just wondering, how does it hit you this morning? Is it something that you've heard so often that it barely moves the needle on significance within your heart and mind? Um, is it so, so repeated that, that it's like dead to you? It's like, so what is your subconscious reply when you hear those words? God loves you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you hear that, uh, you know there's this wall of unbelief that almost immediately erects itself so those words don't really penetrate uh, both to your heart and mind. God loves you. It's hard for you to grasp because you know how, you know how your life's going. You're not really proud of the way you've lived your life, some of the past, maybe even some of the things that are going on in your present it's easier for you to believe that God loves you is true of someone else, maybe someone beside you, someone else you know in the room here, because you know they have their lives together, but you know your own life, and you don't feel worthy of God's love. It could be that when you hear the words, God loves you, it hits you as true and deep and rich. I went to a Bible uh, I was taking a Bible course once with a particular teacher. Uh, he was older in his years, but I was amazed as he talked about God or talked about God and his love. Inevitably, he would start leaking. <laughs> we would see the tears coming from his eyes and, and the emotions just begin to stir him. And uh, he was so used to this, he would always have a, you know, a hanky or a Kleenex in his pocket or whatever, ready to, to wipe up the leakage, because if he talked about God and his love, it, it was personal for him, it was meaningful, it was alive, and it was rich. God loves you. Maybe you don't even know what to make of that simple little phrase, maybe you what is love? Your experience of it has been so mixed. There's been disappointment. There's been disillusionment. I mean, you'd love, you'd love to believe in love and that God loves you, but you're wondering if love isn't just a, an illusion out there, something you want and you grasp for, but you haven't really experienced the true thing, and when you go for it, it seems like you just end up hurt or deceived. God loves you. It could be you're here this morning, maybe you came with a friend who dragged you, and you don't even believe there's a God, or that God can be known. 
Well, this morning, no matter where you're at and, and how those words, God loves you, hits you, I want to invite you into a journey into the Scripture this morning where we look at a passage of Scripture that I think profoundly speaks to this statement and can be transformational because what we're reading, what we're going to hear is not someone else's perspective about God and His love. This is God's perspective Himself. Exodus chapter 34. If you would join me at verse 6, as we are privy to one of the most sacred conversations between God and a person. The Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Just in case you're just joining us this morning and haven't been tracking with us the last few weeks, a little backstory here of how we got to this passage of Scripture. Moses was called by God to leave a, lead a people group out of slavery from Egypt. God did a bunch of miracles through Moses. Uh, they, they are delivered from Egypt. They come into the desert and end up at this mountain where God wants to show them how they can live in relationship with him. Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God to get the instructions. As he's doing that, the people very quickly turn away from God. They start worshiping these idols. It almost completely ruins the relationship, but Moses intercedes, and, and as he pleads with God, God assures him that God's presence will continue to be with these people, and, and Moses, wants to, Moses wants to make sure of this, and so he asks God, he makes a request of God, God, show me your glory. God says, okay, I will, but you can't see it in its fullness. See, just like we can't even look in its fullness at a little piece of God's creation, like the sun, if you're to look at it without any protection and just gaze into it, just this little piece of God's creation, it would like ruin you, ruin your eyes. So no human being can look at the full display of God's glory and splendor. And God says, I'm going to cover you. You'll see my backside, if you will, figuratively speaking. And there I will proclaim to you my glory. And how is God going to do that? He says, I'm going to proclaim to you my name. You're going to see my glory. You're going to see my splendor in the revelation of my name. Now, God has called all kinds of names uh, in the Old Testament and in the New, but there's a particular name that we saw which was revealed to Moses in, in uh, Exodus chapter 3 where God reveals this name to him, Yahweh. It's referred to as the personal name of God, and it's just four Hebrew consonants, and it's translated when you see in your Bible the word Lord in all in capital letters. That's the word Yahweh there. And as far as we can tell, it means I am what I am. Or I will be what I will be. God says, you want to see my glory, Moses? I'm going to proclaim to you my name. I'm going to help you understand what, you, what I always am and always will be. The self-existent, eternally consistent God. Here's what I'm eternally consistent in. Mercy and grace. 
a God who is merciful and gracious, who has always been merciful and gracious, who is merciful and gracious, who always will be merciful and gracious. A God who is patient, slow to anger. He's always been slow to anger. He is slow to anger. He will be slow to anger. He's eternally consistent in his nature and character. And so each week we're looking at a phrase of this revelation of God's name, and it brings us today to this phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who God is. God is love. This is his nature. He cannot but help love. And and of all the character traits that, that God's revealing to Moses, it's this one that God repeats. Abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, or as Deuteronomy echoes, for thousands of generations, God is is steadfast in his love and faithful over and over and over, relentlessly from one generation to the next. This is who God is. He can't help but be that way. This is who he is. And as we hear those words, though, what, what does it mean? What does it mean that God is love? Well, in the Hebrew language, which the Old Testament was written in, that word steadfast love is a translation of a very simple word. I'm going to say it in, from a Hebrew perspective once, but then I'll just say it from a more English perspective. But chesed is the word. Uh, we'll just call it chesed this morning. I think you'll all be grateful for that, and I will be too, uh, so my voice can keep operating. But it's a simple word. There was a, a songwriter, a teacher, um, music performer, Michael Card. Uh, he was really fascinated with this word, hesed, and he decided to write a book about it. And he thought, yeah, I'll write a book about it. It'll take me about a year. It ended up being a 10-year project. There's probably no word in the Old Testament that has as broad a range of meanings as this word hesed has. In fact, if you look at the picture that Michael uh, Card has, uh, has done where it shows all the words of hesed, you can see it goes on and on and on. Each one of these are words that are possibly are possible translations of the word hesed. And you can see there, there are words like gracious, merciful are there, kindness. Um, there are a lot of compound words, loving kindness, abundantly generous, relentlessly loving. Um, it's because this word is so rich that often the translators have to use a compound word in order to, to translate it. And here we, we hear God revealing who he is to Moses, and he says, I'm abounding in steadfast love. That's how it's been translated. And that word steadfast is like a loyal love. And in context, that's how we understand when there's so many broad range, ranges of meaning. In context, we, we see it as Israel often saw that this is a word deeply connected to covenant. I am a God who abounds in a covenant-keeping kind of love. In other words, if, if you're here this morning and... And God loves you as sort of a yawner in your mind. You need to rethink it. Because what God is saying is the self-existent, eternal, 
all-powerful creator God who needs nothing, who's complete in himself, is saying, I'm the kind of God that wants a relationship with you, and I'm willing to commit myself in covenant for that relationship to happen. Wow. That is amazing. From the greater to the lesser, God says, I want a relationship with you. Abounding in steadfast love. Now, when we hear that word love, a lot of times, uh, because of our, our culture, it, it, um, it brings up ideas of feeling and emotion when we think of love. Uh, you can listen to so many love songs, and it's very much, if you listen to them, it's, it's not about choice or anything like that. It's very much about feelings. God's love, we need to, we need to see it's beyond that. And it's not that God doesn't have emotions towards us. When we looked at mercy and grace, we saw that the word mercy is very much rooted in that, is the idea of a a compassion, like a deep, guttural compassion, like a mom would have for her infant child. There's emotion there. If you read on in Exodus 34 here, it talks about how God is a jealous God, like he has great feelings for us. But when we talk about steadfast love, we need to understand and be really clear on something. This is a love that goes beyond emotion, that's much more fundamental than that. It's not based on how God feels about your performance on a particular day, or if you are in some way attractive to God while somebody else isn't. This has nothing to do with that. This is all about the fact that at his very core and at his very nature, God is love. God is love. You don't have to do anything. God's love towards you is not triggered by something good you've done. It exists. God loves you because that is who he is. See, for for us, a lot of times, we give love based on something we, we see in another person. You know, that, that it's attractive to us, and so, or maybe they've done something nice to us, and so they re, we want to reciprocate back to them. So we give love to them as they have given love to us. God's love is, is different than that. God's love is abounding. It's gushing. It's, it's birthing forth like a, like a geyser because he can't help but be that way. And so God is a God who covenants. He makes commitments to you and I so that we will be absolutely sure that it is true. God loves you. God loves you. When I was in uh, middle school, and I'm going to change names to protect the innocent, but um, when I was in middle school... Uh, you know, when, when you grow up, there's infatuation, all kinds of stuff like that that you experience. When I was in middle school, in my group of friends, I, it was made known to me that Janice liked me. And um, I thought, hmm, what does that mean? And so um, I thought Janice was a nice person, but I had no desire for, like, a, a relationship with Janice or, you know, to become boyfriend or girlfriend or anything like that. But everybody else thought I should. They thought, Tim's a nice guy. She's a nice girl. She likes Tim. Tim should like her. And so, you know, I felt all this peer pressure, but I resisted, I resisted, I resisted. And, and I, I never caved. And so I made it through into high school. In high school, the tables were turned because... 
I, I met a girl, let's call her Cheryl. And, and um, like every other guy in high school, I liked Cheryl. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, and she was really nice to me, and we had some really great conversations, but I could see that that's all it was to her. I was a nice, nice boy, and, uh, you know, there would never be any sort of, you know, guy-girl relationship. There's no opportunity here for me. Even though I desired it, there was no opportunity for me for her to go into a, a deeper relationship with her. I mean, really, she was a great older. She was out of my league. You understand that? Everybody understand that phrase? Like, she was out of my league, and so no chance. God is out of our league, but wants to enter into covenant relationship with us. That's what he does. He enters into covenant with us because he's abounding in love and loves us so much that he just has to do that. Now, some of us in our experience in love, as I've mentioned before, we've been disappointed, we've been disillusioned, um, you know, the, the worst is, is if you've grown up and you've not been raised in an environment where, you know, you were affirmed and you were encouraged. You weren't raised in an environment of, of what you would hope love would be like. And sometimes the, the wounds when, when a parent or a father haven't really loved their, their children, the wounds of that go on into life with discontentment and disillusionment and pain and, and the same patterns can be repeated. The worst in... For me, and, and the lack of love is when a person in authority or power, a parent or teacher or whatever, abuses. And that is rampant today in our world. But God is not like that. God is a God, though far superior than us. God is a God who can be fully and completely trusted. This is the biblical record of the God that we are invited to have a relationship with. We cannot let our experiences that we're experiencing, no, no matter how bad or no matter how good, we cannot let those experiences shape our thinking and our perception of what God is like. He is far beyond. And he is completely trustworthy. This word, uh, hesed, Michael Card, as he wrote his book on it, one of the things he talked about is this, this word is so rich, sometimes even, they've even used compound words to translate it, steadfast love, but they have to couple other words with it to get the full richness of the meaning in its context. To quote Michael Card, he talks about, to borrow a concept, from physics, we might say that hesed is a word with an enormous mass. One of the fascinating features of the word is its tendency to draw other words to itself by means of its linguistic gravity. Hope you get the picture. It's as if it's struggling to express the inexpressible. The original writer was forced to enlist other words besides hesed to help convey its meaning. And we see that right here as God explains as he gives the revelation of his name to Moses, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That word literally translated is, is like truth. Truth. In other words, God is true to what he speaks. He's true to his word. He is completely trustworthy. This is what his steadfast, abounding love is like. It is absolutely true to his promises. God keeps his 
promises. He makes commitment, and he fulfills those commitments. Today, he has in the past, and he will in the future. He is a promise keeper because that's the nature of his love, abounding in steadfast love and truth, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's this fascinating story that illustrates this in Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 9 begins a story. Joshua is the leader of the people of Israel after Moses, and so he's to lead God's people into the promised land. They are to displace people groups because the people groups um, have been idolaters and in their idolatry um, done all kinds of crazy things, lewd sexual acts. They would even sacrifice their children to the gods. And, and so the Israelites are never to make a covenant, never make a commitment to any of these people groups. They're to displace them because their beliefs will, will infiltrate and poison the people of Israel and their relationship with God. So they are to displace these people and... and, and um, as they're coming into the land there, there are these pe- a small people group called the Gibeonites who hear about how God's been working through the nation of Israel, how God delivered them from Egypt, and how they've already defeated a couple of kings, and like they're moving, and they're not that far away from where the Gibeonites live. So they, they come up with a scheme. They're going to deceive the nation of Israel. So when they heard it, they, what they decided to do is they're going to have a representative group dress up in old clothing, wear old sandals, you know, look disheveled, have old uh, wineskins on their animals, um, old worn sandals. Like they're going to make it look like they've come from a far and distant country, even though they're only a few hours away. They come, they meet Joshua, they begin a conversation with him. They, they tell them, hey, we've heard about... Uh, we've heard about, you know, all that God has done through you, and we've come to, to enter into peace with you. We want to make a covenant with you. Commit ourselves to peace with one another. Joshua and the leaders failed to consult God, and so they do exactly that. We read that in verse 15 of Joshua 9, how they committed to them. They made covenant with them. Three days later, they discover they've been duped that these Gibeonites aren't from a far and distant land, like they're just around the corner. And the people are upset. Um, they did not, that, they, they're upset that they've entered into this agreement, but, but you need to follow through what, ha- what happens is that Israel, the leaders, make a decision to keep the covenant. We gave our word. We're going to keep our word. They understood what it meant to keep covenant as people of God, as representatives of God. Fast forward the story, and it's not long after. The Gibeonites become um, like a, bi- bad, a bad word in, in, in the nation surrounding. They're upset that the Gibeonites have made covenant with Israel, and so five kings get together. They amass this huge army, and they're going to come against the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites say, send a message to Israel. Help us, help us. We're your covenant partners now. And God gives his full blessing to Israel to bless them, protect them, because they've entered into covenant. This little story is such an example of how God, once he's made a commitment, he keeps his commitments. And in that, inter, in, in that interaction, one of the greatest miracles that we have recorded in the Old Testament happens is Joshua commands the, the sun to stand still. 
Behold the, the, the amazing commitment of God to Hesed, to his abounding, steadfast love. When he makes a commitment, God keeps it. And you think about us sometimes, how we keep our commitments or don't. Even our reluctance to enter into commitment. And how sometimes somebody will ask us, you know, do you want to come to this event or can you help out in this way? And we'll say, well, if I can, like we don't want to commit to, to, to doing that. Or, or we say, I'll be there, but then something better comes up and we find a way to give an excuse so that we don't have to go there because we had FOMO about something else. And so we just really want to hedge our bets and make sure we have the best, we do the best thing on that, on that day. We have the most fun or the most enjoyment or whatever. And so we don't keep our commitments. God's completely different. When God makes a commitment, his word, he keeps it. And, and you can go to the bank on that. So here you are today, this morning, and maybe something's going on in your life where, man, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's hard. And we all find ourselves in that place, don't we? Where, where things take way longer to resolve themselves than we'd like where we're put in places where we're not sure where God is or what he's doing. And how do we handle that? We remind ourselves of the hesed of God. We remind ourselves of the abounding, steadfast love of God and his faithfulness. And when we do that, it completely changes the game and our thinking and how we're going to respond to the circumstances around us. Michael Card points out as he looks at some of the Psalms, not every Psalm is a like, woohoo, praise God, oh, everything's perfect, life is grand, worship the Lord, because when you, when you worship God and he's your king, everything goes perfect for you. No, if you, you read a number of songs, there's, there's like difficulty, there's realness with God, there's lament, there's frustration, there's wonder, there's questioning, God, where are you? And Michael Card points out that some of the psalmists, you know, uh, I'll give you an example, Psalm chapter 13, as you read in there, um, the psalmist says in verse 1, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Have you ever been in a place like that? Like, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Hey, hello. Look at me. See my circumstances. God of favor, loving kindness. This is exactly what happens with the psalmist after pouring out his heart and, and discussing with God how difficult the circumstances. Michael Card says there's often a point of shift in the psalms. And do you know where it shifts? Do you know where it shifts from the negative and the down to the positive and worship? It shifts when the writer reminds himself of hesed, of God's abounding, steadfast love. Verse 5, Psalm 13, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We go on to Psalm chapter 69, and again, it's like, oh God, my prayers to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. This is just after he has said, oh, I'm weary. I'm crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. When did it change? When he reminds himself of the steadfast love. 
We see the prophet in Lamentations talk about how bad things are. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. In other words, he's blaming God for his circumstances, but look where he lands. But this I call to mind. This I remember. This I make a choice to bring to the forefront of my thinking. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love. The hesed of God never ceases from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Abounding in love. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands for generations. Of course, we have this privilege today of being many generations after Moses and this encounter he had with God, and we can see exactly how God keeps his promises. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, in whom it is said, all God's promises are yes and amen. All God's promises are fulfilled in the person of God's son, Jesus Christ. And we can see how God is true to his promises. He's true to his word. And we can see how much God loves us, not just by his declaration to Moses, but we can see it through the story of the person and presence of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, God in the flesh, walking among us, paying the price of the incarnation, paying the price of becoming one of us, limiting himself to humanity, And then walking among people who reject him and ultimately take him to the cross where they persecute him. And there on the cross, he sheds his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, yes. There's something that that goes also with that. Through his blood, he makes a new covenant. He shows us that he's got even more. He's got better. The promises in Jesus are better than what was in the Old Testament. The covenant of Jesus is better, and we're going to unpack that in a couple of weeks. Because God so loves, it says, he sent his son. A demonstration of the abounding, steadfast, promise-keeping love of God. Can you see it? Can you see it in his person? Can you see it in his declaration? God loves you because that's who he is. In Romans chapter 8, it asks the question, like, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Nothing. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God gave us his son, will he not freely with him give us all things? Because he is abounding in love, steadfast love and faithfulness. See it in his son, Jesus. What difference does it make to know that God loves you? What difference does it make? I would say everything. 
It changes how we look at God, that God is love. Sometimes our view of God is that he's, he's a condemning, he's a judgmental God. No, he is abounding in love, steadfast love towards you. Sometimes we need to see the, the way that we see ourselves change. Can you see how God sees you? He sees you as one that he loves. And he loved you so much, whether, whether right now you're in a relationship with Jesus or not, he loved you so much he gave his son to die for you that you could come into a covenant relationship with Jesus. That's how much he loves you. Can you see how much he loves the people around you? Shouldn't this change the way we hope? Shouldn't this change the way we treat one another? Shouldn't this change the way we make commitments and keep them? Shouldn't this change the way we feel about our lives and the hope that we have? Doesn't this just change everything about who we are and what we do? Because God loves you. This morning we have an opportunity to remind ourselves about that in communion. I'm going to pray and then we'll enter into that. Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, Lord. Thank you. You haven't left us to try and figure it out, but God, you've you revealed it to us in your word. You revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus, and you continue to reveal that to us through your Holy Spirit, making alive these truths. We thank you, Lord, that your love is relentless. It's eternal. We thank you that it's trustworthy, Lord. It's a sure foundation upon which to live our lives. And so, Lord, we, we want to remind ourselves of that. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to continually remind ourselves, Lord, of your steadfast love. When those tapes play in our head, Lord, of doubts and fear and anxiety, Lord, may we bring to the forefront of our mind you and your love demonstrated especially through your son, Jesus. And God, I pray as we now partake in communion, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would make alive in our hearts and open the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our understanding, Lord, to understand your love better in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.